Welcome to The Backpack, a podcast from Christ Community Church in Shelbyville, Kentucky. On The Backpack, we want to prepare you for the journey outside where following Jesus meets real life. Hey, and welcome to The Backpack. My name is DJ. I'm one of your hosts, and thanks for joining me back at The Canteen, one of our regular segments where we feature sermons from the preaching ministry here at Christ Community Church. This week, we continue onward in our study of the Gospel of Luke. Pastor Blake takes a look at Luke chapter 3. We look at the figure that we've come to know as John the Baptist and the message of repentance that he comes preaching. How do we read and respond to that message in a world full of power struggles that looks very similar to the world John was speaking into? Well, let's listen in as Pastor Blake answers those questions in this week's message. We've been journeying through the book of Luke. Kenny uh, took us through the, the end of chapter two last week. Today, we're going to open up to chapter three. And what's cool about this is just like Ethan is celebrating kind of that milestone birthday where in America, it's like, oh, you're moving from like teenager to closer to adult, <laughs> right? Just in that, like, we also see that same time gap in the life of Christ happening as we move from chapter two to chapter three. Um, so we're going to be in chapter three, verses one through 20. We're just going to walk through that here verse by verse. But before we do, I want us to hear uh, some words from a singer songwriter you may have heard of. His name is Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney. Uh, if you don't know him, here's a picture of him. Uh, you, you, he, he's a good writer. So uh, he penned these lyrics. It's a tug of war. What with one thing and another. It's a tug of war. We expected more, but with one thing and another, we were trying to outdo each other in a tug of war. In another world, we could stand on top of the mountain with our flag unfurled. In a time to come, we will, we will be dancing to the beat played on a different drum. It's a tug of war. Though I know I mustn't grumble, it's a tug of war. But I can't let go. If I do, you'll take a tumble. And the whole thing is going to crumble. It's a tug of war. Life feels that way sometimes, doesn't it? And deep down, every single one of us recognizes that power never comes from power struggles. Power never comes from power struggles. And we're going to see that as we open up chapter 3 right here at the beginning. It's the first point as we open up this, this chapter in Luke's gospel. You may remember that Luke's gospel is, is Luke writing. It's his attempt to create certainty about Christ for this guy named Theophilus. He wants him to be certain about Christ so that he can confidently live out his faith. And as he does that, as he goes from chapter 2 to chapter 3, he's zooming forward over a decade plus uh, from Jesus' teen years to what would now be somewhere around the beginning of, of Jesus' ministry. So like I said, rather than reading the whole passage at the start today, we're just going to kind of walk through uh, this passage together. And so I want to encourage you to, to follow along, whether that's on your phone or uh, in your copy, your physical copy of God's Word. And Luke begins this chapter by introducing the, the political powers in play at the time. It's a snapshot of the, of the power struggle, the political tug of war that Jesus would have been entering into. So here it goes. It says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of 
Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Why would Luke include this? Well, you see, we, we recognize right off the top that political power has, has changed since Jesus' birth. And as we look at some history, we learn that, that this political change of power hasn't come peacefully. You may remember that it was Augustus Caesar who had sent out the decree that everyone would return to their hometown and be registered. Well, he's gone now. And although he was never the preferred heir, Tiberius Caesar has become the Roman emperor. He soon showed why Augustus had wanted someone else. His political inability, his poor judgment and jealousy led Rome into a dark age of, of political purges and murder and, and terror. It was, a, it was a dark time in the Roman Empire. We notice too from this list that all these, all these tetrarchs, like what is a tetrarch? Well, you may remember King Herod, the, the one that the wise men had visited, the baby killer. He had passed away, and his kingdom had been split three ways between his sons. That, and that situation, too, had turned into a hot mess, just to be honest, right? You, you have this confusion now about, well, who's really the most powerful? And, and so Roman rule was dark. Local rule was confusing and, and a power struggle. And then Luke mentions not one, but two high priests. So, like, who's the higher priest? Why, why does Luke list two high priests? What's going on? Well, you see, Annas had been the high priest for several years, but he got into some trouble with the Roman government. Uh, Gratus, the Roman governor at the time, deposed Annas, and, and he, he removed him from that. But Annas saw to it that his son Caiaphas, son-in-law, Caiaphas, sorry, was elevated to the role of high priest. And, and so Caiaphas was the official high priest by title when John the Baptist began his ministry, but Annas was still alive. And it's very clear that he was, you know, kind of pulling the strings behind the scenes. We know this, not just from this moment in biblical history, but, but also some other areas in scripture where we would see this to be true. So we see that, that this is pretty messed up. The world that, that Jesus was coming into was smack in the middle of a good old-fashioned political tug of war. I think it's safe to say, right, that, that we can all relate to the political power struggle. It's a, it's a changing landscape in our country right now, and no one seems to quite know where, where it's headed. But the power struggles that, that often really affect us, the ones that, that cause us to relate to the, the lyrics of, of Paul McCartney and Tug of War, right? The ones that, that really begin to work on us on the insides are much more closely related to our, our daily lives. We end up in a, a power struggle, a standoff with, with one of our kids. At the end of the day, the parents win because they're parents. But did we really win? You know, as we, as we go our own separate ways and everybody's mad at each other, did, did anybody? No, power never comes from power struggles. We find ourselves backed into corners as conflict invades our marriage. And at some point, the, the power struggle seems too burdensome and we'd rather just let go of the rope. Power never comes from, from power struggles. We find ourselves struggling with, with someone who has authority in our lives, maybe a teacher, a boss, a mentor, 
We don't want to be disrespectful to them, but at the same time, we, we just can't quite shake the feeling that something isn't fair. Something isn't right. And so there's this inner power struggle happening in us. And we know that power never comes from power struggles. Maybe we find ourselves uh, in a conversation. This isn't uh, you know, far out there in today's day and age. We find ourselves engaging in a conversation with someone who doesn't see sexuality the way that we do. We feel that rope tightening as each side picks up their end of the rope. And in the back of our mind, we're wondering how should we actually engage in this conversation? What does it look like to do this well? Because I know that in the back of my mind, power never comes from power struggles. I'm reminded of James's words in James 4.1 when he says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? So what do we do? In the middle of that, that first century Middle Eastern power struggle, it wasn't what the people did, but what God did. God's word came. God's word came to John. He sent his word to John. In the middle of this, this world power struggle, something that hadn't been seen or, or heard from in a long time, God's word came. In, in the middle of these dark times when God had, had seemingly been silent, he was now entering the stage through the words of this guy named John. John was a pretty interesting guy living out in, in the wilderness. You, you may remember John as that cute baby in Elizabeth's belly who did flips when Mary came to visit, and we all collectively went, oh. But now John's a little bit more grown up. He's had his 18th birthday, and, and he's just a little bit out there in all the ways. He didn't wear the traditional clothes. He, he had camel hair on, and he didn't eat the traditional diet. He he ate some weird stuff, and, and he lived off the grid. You might know a John or two. They're coming to mind, even as we think, like, yeah, they, they're just a little bit off. This is John. But for some reason, in the middle of this political tug of war, God's word came to John, and that was something else that made him very unique. God's word had come to him. He had something to say. He had something to say. Look at verses 3 through 7 with me of Luke chapter 3. It says, John went into all the vicinity. I think that could possibly be translated as out in the middle of nowhere of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight. The rough way is smooth. And everyone will see the salvation of God. Well, this sounds great. Because don't we as a people prefer to talk about solutions as opposed to struggles? Like, isn't that what we all want? We want to talk about solutions, not struggles. Don't bring me a problem if you don't bring me a way to fix it. 
And so John's message about a way that, that doesn't have hills or valleys, sharp turns or rough spots, probably sounded really, really good in a world that was full of all this dark and confusing leadership. So, so even though John was this weird dude in the middle of nowhere, people, and when I say people, crowds were going to see him. In fact, these, these likely weren't just Jewish folks who were looking for the Messiah. Luke writes about tax collectors and soldiers who are coming. I mean, there's a really good chance that, that the crowds who are coming are not all Jewish. And they're coming to be baptized by John. We're like, praise God! People are coming to know him! Woo! People want to hear the word of God and they want to be baptized. But then John reminded them, of their unchecked desire for the easy way. He reminded them that they wanted to talk about just the solution and not the struggle that came with life. Verse 7, John then said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers! You love to see these words when you, you know, open a text to start preaching it. Brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? John, dude, if you want people to come, you need to make sure that, like, okay, you're already out in the middle of nowhere, but you're at least close to the Jordan. Make sure that the families have some time to get their kids out playing in the water. Like, do something. Like, have you not been to seminary? You should preach things that make people want to come and tickle their, like, do you not know how to gather a crowd, John? You don't start with brood of vipers. But that's where he starts. Brood of vipers. You called them snakes. Nobody likes snakes. Except for maybe middle school boys. It's <laughs> an amen. Uh, I want to, uh, <laughs> I love this story. My dad was once a middle schooler. It's kind of a weird thing to think about. I've got a picture of my dad, a uh, recent picture of him and my mom doing one of their favorite things. They have season tickets to the Purdue football games, Boiler Up. And uh, this is my dad now. He's a good-looking guy. You know, he's, he's not a John the Baptist who has camel hair on or anything. But he was once a middle schooler. It's a little tough for me to envision my favorite story of dad when he was in middle school. He was in middle school. He had a girlfriend in middle school. So one day he comes to school, and a buddy of his has gotten a new toy, a rubber snake. Middle school boys be middle school boying. He comes up to his buddy and he's like, dude, that is so cool. Can I see it? He's like, yeah. So dad's checking it out. And my dad says, how much do you want for your rubber snake? He's like, I, I, I don't want to sell it to you. My dad says, what do you want for it? I'll give you whatever you want for it. I really want this rubber snake. And the kid looks back at my dad, true story, and he says, I want your girlfriend. <laughs> and my dad says, deal. <laughs> wow. Now you know. You know, I'm, I'm a little messed up. Maybe we're a little more like John the Baptist than we thought. I don't know. So my dad loses a girlfriend, gains a rubber snake, and he goes home. Why did my dad want a rubber snake? 
It wasn't because he thought snakes were cool. It wasn't even because he wanted to play with it. That day, the rubber snake went into his jeans pocket and it stayed there intentionally. Later that night, my dad snickered as he heard the screams of my grandma emptying his pockets in the laundry room. My grandma hates snakes. All for a girlfriend. You know, it's cheap price. Who? Nobody likes snakes. Snakes are this, uh, they've always been associated from the beginning with the enemy, right? It was, it was Satan's, the form that he took as he came and he tempted Adam and Eve. And now John is calling these crowds of people, not just snakes, but, but broods of vipers. This just in, snakes aren't communal. They, like, they don't hang out together on the weekends. And he's saying, these are, there's a bunch of you together. Like, what is going on? Why is John calling the people a brood of vipers? You see, he wants them to see that their action, what their actions are really saying about them. He wants them to recognize that they've come out in the middle of nowhere seeking something, and it isn't necessarily the right thing. Some of them are likely hoping that John is the new power player on this new political scene, and, and maybe they could be a part of this new power group. Maybe they could have some of that power for themselves. Some of them were, were probably scared about how dark their world had gotten, and they were, they were willing to try just about anything. They would be snakes in the grass if they could be on the right side, if they could feel a little bit of relief or, uh, from their anxiety that they felt. Some of them were, were maybe curious about the Messiah. Maybe John was the Messiah. And the Messiah, in their mind, was going to begin this big political revolution. Maybe they could be in on the coup. Whatever their reason, when John calls them a brood of vipers, he makes it really clear. You guys want to be baptized for the wrong reasons. You want this baptism to save you, but you don't even understand what you need to be saved from. You want to talk about the solution without talking about your struggles. We're like the crowds, aren't we? How often do we come to Jesus wanting him to just be the solution to fix our problems without ever talking about the struggles? It forces us to ask these, these deep, reflective questions. Do we want Jesus to simply offer us solutions before we're willing to confess our struggles to him, to agree with him about the sinful nature in us? Maybe even more practically than when we don't do that well with our relationship with Christ, we, we begin to do that in our relationship with others. We, we want to work on solutions with our spouse or with our kids or with our peers or our boss before we've openly talked about the struggles that we face in those relationships. As we minister to other people, we have to ask ourselves, are we a safe place to talk about struggles? Or when struggles come up, do we proudly judge them because we're not like them? Because if we're not a safe place to talk about struggle, tr struggles, it becomes impossibly hard to genuinely offer Jesus as a solution. We want to talk about solutions instead of struggles. John knows that that won't work. So his words are shocking. Brood of vipers, who warned you? And when he says this, it interrupts the hearts of the crowds. It's shocking. It wakes them up. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus 
gives our dead hearts the power to repent. He shocks them back to life, just as DJ read from Ephesians 2. He takes our dead hearts and gives life to them. Denny Kellington knelt over DeMar Hamlin's body as the Buffalo Bills football player laid on the field in Cincinnati. And as he knelt over his body, he realized that DeMar had no pulse. And as a trained medical professional, his response was to initiate CPR, right? CPR mimics the typical pumping of a heart. And it's only needed when the pump has stopped pumping. Now, typically, you may know this, a heart pumps because of an electrical shock sparked by the sinoatrial node. That, that node sends an electrical impulse through that fancy muscle called the heart. You see, as intricately designed as our hearts are, as, I mean, as crazy as it is to think about how much care and thought went into the design of the human heart, without the shock of that node, they fail to pump life-giving blood to the body. Evidence for a creator. John knew that if these crowds of people with dead hearts were going to live, they needed to be shocked. So after the shock that came with brood of vipers, look at what John says next in verses 8 and 9. Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What is John saying when he says this? What's the, what's the point of these two illustrations that he gives? Notice that both of the illustrations talk about things that are dead. Stones have no life, and yet God can raise up living children from them. He can give dead things life. The axe is already at the root of the trees. You know, why do you cut down a tree? Well, you cut down a tree when it's dead and it's stopped producing fruit. That's when you cut it down and throw it in the fire. John, you see, is essentially saying to the crowds, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've accomplished, your hearts are dead. You're here wanting to be baptized because your heart has been destroyed by your self-centered sinfulness. And you see, this is good news. <laughs> what? How, how could John say he's, he's preaching good news? Because in the same sentence, he's telling them that their hearts are dead. He's also reminding them that God can bring them back to life. He can cause them to live lives that are producing fruit. Jesus gives our dead hearts the power to repent. Now, here's why that's a big deal. Because too often we let ourselves off the hook by believing wrongly that repentance is a decision that we make in our heart. I'm in control of that. No. You're in control of being obedient, 
but the repentance, that shock that comes when we recognize that we are not right with God, when we recognize the guilt that we feel from the sin that is in our lives, that is a gift of God stirring a dead heart back to life. Just as the essay note brings a, a shocks a healthy heart, just as, as Denny's CPR shocked DeMar's heart, the guilt and conviction of our sin given to us by the Spirit sh- shocks our heart. It gives us the opportunity to pursue life in Christ. That's the decision that you have to make. Will I follow him or will I not? But the gift of God is shocking our heart with, with the, the opportunity to repent. 2 Corinthians 7.10 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. So Paul is in a sense saying like there's two different kinds of grief and, 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 and guilt that comes from that. So the world, you see, has convinced us that, that any guilty feeling is wrong. Like, you just shouldn't have to, to feel that. Any feeling of, of insufficiency is, is wrong. Now, let me say this. In Christ, yes, Christ removes all those things. He, he takes all those things away. He makes us righteous. He, he removes the guilt of our sin. But we also have to recognize, right, that there is good guilt, there is good grief that God uses to, to shock our hearts and bring us back to life. We can't just, you know, take it all out or put it all in. The world has convinced us of that. And if we buy that lie, we lose the power of the gospel. Jesus isn't needed if we don't recognize that our heart has stopped beating. And so when we realize that, that our hearts are dead, and that the guilt we feel about our sin is a, is a shock that, that gives us the opportunity to, to make our hearts beat again, then we find ourselves asking the same question that the crowds were. If my, if my heart is dead, how can I ever produce fruit consistent with repentance? What should we do? Is the question that they begin asking in verse 10 and asking over and over and over again. Pick it up with me. John's response in verse 11. <clears throat> he replied to them, John replied to them, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none. And the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He told them, don't collect any more than what you have been authorized. Well, some soldiers also questioned him, what should we do? And he said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. Woo-wee! John, you are coming in hot. Everybody's like, John, you're preaching to me today. <laughs> you came right at me. But I don't believe John enjoyed like getting all up in people's stuff and be like, oh yeah, that was convicting, wasn't it? That's not his spirit. Why is it then that, that John jumps right to the pinch points of people's lives? Why is it that when they ask, what should we do? He recognizes who they are. He asks the spirit and he says, man, tax collector. Okay, quit collecting more than you should. Why does he do that? Last year, I shared a little bit about um, some dressers that Caitlin was refinishing. I helped just a, a small bit, but mostly Caitlin. 
And uh, she had bought these dressers from a thrift store. We brought them home and we were going to refinish them, stain them, all the things. And she finished them. They look great. They look fantastic. And, uh, you know, I want to remind you of, of what took the most time in that process. It was getting them to a place where they would soak up the stain. Because when we got them, right, they had these thick coats of poly on them that had to be stripped off. And then once you got that off, then they had to be sanded and sanded some more and sanded some more. And some of you can feel the pain with me of sanding some more. And you kept sanding and sanding and sanding. And then once you finally got to that place, then you could stain. But even then, every once in a while as we're standing, then we'd come to a place that wasn't quite sanded enough, you know, like a little corner on the edge or whatever. And, and you could visibly see as you stained the furniture that the stain didn't soak in quite as well. The color was a little different, or at the very least, like it took it a little bit longer to dry and soak in there the way that it was supposed to. Our lives in Christ are very similar. You see, you can't be stained by the blood of Christ if the stickiness of sin hasn't been removed. The power of God never sticks if the power of sin hasn't been sanded away. I'm not saying you can't know it, but how many of us have been on that cycle where it's like, I, I tried God, I tried God, I tried God, but it's like I just have to keep painting him on. So John says to the person who is rich and greedy with what they have, if you really want the power of God to stick, you got to share what you've been given. That's what repentance looks like for you. He says to the tax collector who's in a position to exploit people or to take advantage of them, if you really want the power of God to stick, if you want Jesus to soak into your life, you're going to have to collect only what you're supposed to. Like if you really want to experience the power of God in your life. To the soldier who's, who's incredibly powerful in the Roman Empire, probably even more so as you've got all this political change, right? He says, if you're really here, if you really came out in the wilderness to hear about the power of God and you want that to be the thing that changes your life, you're going to have to lay down all that power and intimidation that you're using to get things for yourself. The good news is that Jesus can do this very same thing for you today. He can do it for you today. The power of God is available to you. But the power of God never sticks if the power of sin isn't sanded away. You know, it hit me this week in reflection that people in the area wouldn't have been impacted by all the baptisms. Like, that's great, but they're out in the wilderness. There was no Instagram, so, you know, they couldn't get like 40,000 likes on their Instagram story. People weren't impressed that they'd gone out into the wilderness and been dunked in some cold water. What was impressing upon them was the changed lives they were leading. Imagine when the tax collector came to your door the next time and said, and you answered, and he says, hey, you know what? I've been charging you 200, but I was taking advantage of you. You only owe me 100. Do what? Is that, is that really you? What'd you do with the old tax collector? Well, it really is me. I repented. And if I want the power of God to stick, I've got to sand away the sin in my life that keeps him from working. And part of that is being honest about 
how much taxes you owe. Imagine when the soldier knocked on your door. And the last time he was here, he intimidated you and threatened you. And you peek through the window and you see that it's a soldier knocking and you're trembling because you're thinking, what's he going to do this time? What's he asking of this time? And you open the door. And as you open the door, he says, I'm just here to give you back the money that I took. What's the catch? Like, no. Are you serious? No catch. No catch. I just repented out in the wilderness. I experienced the power of God in my life. And if I want the power of God to stick, I've got to break the power of sin in my life. Here's the thing. There's a lot of people who have been trying to paint Jesus on their splintered lives year after year after year after year. Is that you? You know he's good. You believe in who he is. You think he's the solution, but you've never experienced his power working in your life. Well, the power of God never sticks if the power of sin hasn't been sanded away. Don't explain away or run away from the God-given guilt you feel this morning. Lean into it. Ask the Spirit what he's doing with it. Ask the Spirit the same question that those crowds did. What should I do? And then thank the Lord for shocking your heart. Thank you, Lord, for calling me out. What should I do? This process, if, if nothing else th this morning, think about this. This process requires of you radical honesty with yourself. Radical honesty with yourself. I will no longer allow myself to excuse my sins. I will no longer allow myself to, to think of myself as a victim of my circumstances, but instead I will allow Christ to be the one who defines me. I will be radically honest about those things. It's the only way that it works. The power of Christ shocking you and empowering you to be radically honest about who you are and about who he is. You say, Blake, how will I know when it really works? Like, how will I know when the power of God is, is there to stay? When the power of God sticks, you'll want everyone to know no matter the cost. When the power of God sticks, you'll want everyone to know no matter the cost. Finish this passage with me in verse 15. It says, now the people were waiting expectantly and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. Well, John answered them all. Hey, listen, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I am is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. And then, along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed good news to the people. John makes clear the most powerful thing in the entire world. Belief in Jesus Christ. John says, listen, this is, this is where my power comes from. I'm not even unworthy to untie his sandals, but I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the Messiah, the Son of God, our Lord and our Savior. 
All the crowds coming and listening and responding to his message, and yet none of that had gone to John's head. He still, because he was radically honest with himself as the Spirit interacted with him, he was still nothing compared to Jesus, and he knew it. It was his word, it was God's word that had come. That was the good news. When the power of God sticks, you'll want everyone to know. That's what gave John the courage to to start a sermon with brood of vipers. It's also what gave John the courage to say what we see in verse 19. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch, oh yeah, that guy at the beginning of the chapter who was part of this big political tug of war. When John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, hmm, sleeping with his sister-in-law, Seems like a not good thing to do. And all the evil things he had done, Herod added this to everything else. And he locked up John in prison. <sighs> you see, John, I told you, you just needed to let the kids play in the Jordan River a little bit and everything would have been okay. That calling people out stuff only goes so far. Just stick to Jesus, would you? Leave people alone. Even if they are sleeping with their sister-in-law and ruling with wickedness. Is that the conclusion that we should come to at the end of this passage? (laughs) John, in prison, would later be beheaded by Herod at the orders of Herodias. It's a sickening story. And the question we're left to ask is, was it worth it? Was Jesus worth it? John wondered too. We read in Luke 7 that while John was in prison, he began to wonder, to to doubt, was Jesus really the Messiah? Was he really the one who was coming to save us? So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus. Like that's that's how intense his doubt was. Like, guys, I just need to know. Please go ask and let me know. And in Luke 7, and 23, we read Jesus' response. He says, Go and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. And those words encouraged John the Baptist to be faithful to the end. The power of God stuck when the power of God sticks, you'll want everyone to know, no matter the cost. Little did John know just how much his life mattered to so many others. It wasn't just his preaching. It wasn't just his odd life that led to lots of baptisms out in the desert. It was his personal commitment to radical honesty. It was his personal commitment to to produce the fruit of repentance. It was his personal commitment to belief that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, that helped pave the way for Jesus to make a way for you and I. It was the sandpaper messages that allowed the power of God to stick in their hearts. John had made a way for a revolution in Christ that's still going to this day. As the band comes this morning, the invitation is simple. Do you want to be a part of it? 
Do you want to be a part of it? You see, that very same message that John first preached in the wilderness is coming to you. At your core, you're a brood of vipers. You come to Jesus looking for answers and unwilling to talk about your struggles. But by his grace, he shocks your heart and helps you see that there is sin in you that you can do nothing about and you need a savior. What do we do? The same thing he encouraged. Repent. Be baptized. And then keep producing the fruit of repentance in your life. And as you do, Jesus will invite you to join him on a new path outside of anything you could have ever asked or imagined in your own heart. It won't always be safe to follow Jesus, but it will always be certain. That's the message Luke wanted Theophilus to understand. I can't guarantee you that when you follow Jesus, everything's going to line up in this world, but you can always be certain that you are secure in Christ. Jesus is what gives us our certainty. This morning, we invite you to respond and align your life with his, to confess, to say the same thing that Jesus would say about you, that I'm a sinner and he is my savior. This morning, if you've never made that confession, if, you, if you've never said, the only hope I have is Jesus Christ, we would love to walk with you and, and say yes and amen to that with you. If you need to make that confession this morning, Kenny will be in the back. Uh, and, and I would love for you just to go spend a few moments with him and, and let him encourage you in that decision. Maybe this morning you need to be baptized. You've been, you've been repenting. You've been trying to give more and more of your life to Christ. And you want the world to know that Jesus is my Savior. I was dead, but he's brought me back to life. And if that's you this morning, we want to we wanna walk with you and help you figure out those details. Kenny and Katie will be in the back. They can help you with that too. Maybe this morning you've made those decisions, right? But repentance is on you again, right? There, there's these areas of my life that I've not been radically honest about. I need to repent. I need to be honest. I need to confess those sins to the Lord. Because when I come to take communion this morning as a baptized believer in Christ, I'm saying, I'm agreeing with Jesus that the reason he went to the cross was to forgive me of my sins. And if I can't agree with him about my sins, then I have no place with him at the table. So take a few moments this morning as we respond to repent, to be radically honest about the sin that is in your life, allowing the Lord to sand it down so that his power can stick with you. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for sending John to make a way not just for you, but for so many others who needed to hear his message of repentance. Lord, may we receive it this morning. May we be radically honest about who we are so that we might receive the power of Christ. Thank you for loving sinners like us, for coming at just the right time so that we might find life again in you. Give us the courage to join you 
as you speak to us today through your spirit. Help us to be honest with ourselves and with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, DJ again. Thanks for joining us at the canteen and listening to this week's message. Uh, We hope it was helpful to you and that you're encouraged and challenged as we set out this week to walk the walk of faith together, joining Jesus in going outside. Uh, If you're a part of Christ's community, hey, let's, let's lean into this. Let's not let this just be an academic exercise, but let's apply what we've heard today. How can you be applying this truth in your life this week? If you're not part of the Christ Community family, we're glad that you joined us, glad that you found us, and we hope that uh, that this message was helpful to you as well. One encouragement we would give you, if you're not part of a local church, uh, please don't use these resources as a substitute for that. It is a pale imitation of the real thing as we live in community with one another. So if you're in the Shelbyville area, we'd love to have you come out and join us. But wherever you are, find a local church, get plugged in an experienced Christian community as it was meant to be, and continue to use these resources to supplement that journey. But please don't replace it. Thanks for joining us this week. Grab your backpack, and I will see you on the trail. Thanks for listening to The Backpack, a production of Christ Community Church. The Backpack is hosted by DJ Williams, Daniel Bright, and Josiah Ward. You can learn more about Christ Community Church at loveshelbyville.com.